Welcome to the Kindling's Muse podcast, an intelligent, imaginative, hospitable exploration of ideas that matter in contemporary life. When you get to introduce someone who you consider to be one of your heroes, it's always difficult. Um, Brenda Salter McNeil, or as our students at SPU will call her Dr. Brenda, um, is a gift to many people, not just here in our university, but also across the country and around the world. I'm going to get the perfunctory stuff done first, which is this. Uh, Brenda is the Associate Professor of Reconciliation Studies in the School of Theology at SPU, alongside me. She directs our Reconciliation Studies program uh, that has been moving and changing the lives of young people and seminarians now for a few years. She is the author of books that are entitled, and hear these titles because this is important, A Credible Witness, Reflections on Power, Evangelism, and Race. Another one of her titles has touched so many, The Heart of Racial Justice, How Soul and Change Leads to Social Change. Those are some of the, the things behind her, her academic credentials, her writing, her speaking, you know, plenary speaker at Urbana a number of times, you know, a voice um, in our communities in many ways. But I want to leave you with this as I bring uh, Dr. Brenda up to be with us today. One of the gifts I have in walking around campus are these moments of a little bit like a spiritual paparazzi, of watching and seeing the ways that God shows up in students' lives. And there is this posture that Brenda will have with a student that you will see, where she'll have one hand on their shoulder, another hand like this, in, in, the, in their face, right like that. And there are moments all around campus where every once in a while I'll see Brenda and she's like this, with a student. One hand touching her, and another hand pointing to where Jesus is, showing up calling out from the heart of a young student the possibility of meeting this world in ways that they never even possibly imagined and giving them the gift of her presence as a way to say, I want you to be God's people in this time. So I look forward to Brenda doing this with us right now. <laughs> Dr. Brenda Sautermanian. <laughs> Well, thanks. This has been a joy. I really have enjoyed my time with you. It's my first time. My family's with me, and we've never been on Orcas Island. We moved here from Chicago, Illinois, four years ago, and um, it's making Seattle home. And so little by little, we're seeing more and more of the beauty of the Pacific Northwest. I'm really a city girl, so I won't pretend to be an outdoorsy kind of person. I really, truly like the whole thing. Lights, you know, crime. <laughs> 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 you know, traffic, I like it. I'm, I, I mall, I like it. But I have come to really appreciate being in Seattle, and Orcas is just absolutely beautiful. So I'm really, really thankful. And um, I love working with college students. I just plain do. I didn't realize I had a paparazzi behind me, but golly, I do. And so I could just say that brings me joy, and you'd know a lot about me. But as I thought.
thought about what would be the best way for me to talk to you because the joy of reconciliation, right? And I thought about that title. And there's certain words that engender certain feelings. And as soon as you say them, they, uh, they elicit an emotion. And reconciliation can be one of those words, I promise, right? It's like when I'm at home with my family and I'll say, hey, you guys, I want to talk about the dishes. See, I didn't even say anything. And all of a sudden, everybody's like, and then the fact, well, I did them last time, and I didn't put them in the sink, so reconciliation is one of those. Like, I'd like to talk about reconciliation. And it engenders all kinds of emotions on the inside. So it's not going to be that bad, I promise. (laughs) Or at least it's going to come with love. And... um, And so I thought the best way for me to talk about a tough situation or a potentially uh, tough topic is to just talk about my own story. So um, I want to do that with you. And and I want to begin by quoting a scripture. I didn't know I was going to start with the scripture, and I'm going to come back to it again. But let me just read this, because I really believe this, and and, and it'll help you to know a bit about where I'd like to go. There's a scripture in Mark, and I was on staff with InterVarsity. I'll tell you a little bit about that. And we study the gospel. Gospel of Mark a lot is one of the things that university folks do. We take people through manuscript study where we study the Gospel of Mark in depthly. And um, there's a scripture that's been messing with me, and and by that I mean it, it grabs me and won't let me go for a while, and that means years. I keep thinking about it, turning it over in my own head, trying to figure out what it means. And here's the scripture: It says, "No one puts new wine into old wine skins." Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and so are the skins. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. I believe that. Let's pray. Lord God, that's why we've come. We've come to receive fresh wine, new wine, and we want to receive it in full abundance I say out loud over these, my sisters and brothers, that we, Lord God, are the receivers, the receptacles of the new wine. And we realize that we need new wineskins to contain it. And so, Lord God, this image of wine being a symbol of joy, would you pour new wine? Would you be the God who shows up at the wedding feast of Cana, Galilee, and turns what we thought was the best into something extraordinary? Would you show us what it is to turn water into wine? Would you show us what it is to save the best for such a time as this? Come Holy Spirit, pour yourself out, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, I've been on a journey. I've been on a journey for a long time, I realize. And that journey has been uh, uh, a traveling, kind of wandering into the meaning of who I am. What my name means, actually. My first name is Brenda. And most people don't know, but my middle name is Joyce. I was born Brenda Joyce Salter. My mom was eight months pregnant, I think, and uh, I was the second child. My sister is older, so they were hoping for a boy. You know, first girl, then a boy. So I was supposed to be Leonard J. 
And for most of the pregnancy, they were holding on to Leonard J. And I don't know why, but one day my dad came home in the eighth month of pregnancy and said, you know what? My mother's name is Dorothy. He called her Dot for short. He said, you know what, Dot? That's not a boy, that's a girl, and we're going to name her Brenda Joyce. Eight months pregnant, she said, okay. <laughs> right? No argument. Okay, sounds good. <clears throat> now, my husband and I have followed suit in that kind of process, and, and he has been the person who has chosen the names of our children so that they can say, my daddy, you know, named me, and, and we really struggled over what to name our kids. They have one name that comes from a scriptural root and another name that comes from an African root. We wanted to give them both a spiritual and a cultural history to live into and heritage to embrace. But my mom and dad weren't doing all of that. We don't know where Brenda Joyce came from for him. And for the longest time, we just thought it was a fluke and he just said Brenda Joyce. But the older I get, the more I realize that he named me and I've been living into that declaration that we've been saying all these years. Brenda means fiery spirit. Mm-hmm. Enthusiastic. <laughs> Little did that man know, right? So it's an Irish root, and it means firebrand, and it, it translates into fiery spirit or enthusiastic. Am I not? Right? But again, I don't think they meant it. I don't think they intended it. I, it's just what they named me. But I am indeed that person. I am indeed that catalytic fiery spirit that I've had to learn to live into, believe in, and receive her and let her be herself with all her fire. And it scares me, but that's her, right? She is a fiery chick. And the more I preach, the fiery I'll get. So just know that'll happen because that's just who I am. And, and I'm sure if they could change, they might have named me something else, calm. But they didn't. So I'm not calm. Hallelujah. <laughs> I'm not a calm one. So Fiery spirit is the first name, and then the middle name is Joy. Joyce, a woman who is fiery and passionate and has this wellspring that, that, uh, that, that kind of tempers the fire, that maybe informs the fire, Joy. And so maybe I've been on a search to figure out what brings me joy, what brings this fiery chick joy. What really makes her come alive? Well, I'm starting to figure out as I discover the purpose and my calling in life, the reason for which I was born, that Winston Churchill said something that I believe is true. And, and so uh, there's a quote uh, that I asked Carlo to put up on, on, on the screen for you. And I, I believe it. He said, there comes a time in every person's life when they are given a unique opportunity to discover the purpose for which they, they were born. It is their moment of destiny, and if they seize it, it is their finest hour. Now, what I'm beginning to believe is that there's a series of moments here, not just one. I think we have defining moments, amen? 
not just one moment, but, but series of moments. And so one of my first defining moments was, we can take the quote down, was before I was a believer, didn't know Jesus Christ, wasn't trying to know Jesus Christ. I was living in Trenton, New Jersey, which is where I was born and raised. And I grew up in what I now know is an inner city neighborhood for the most part. But we were a working class, primarily African-American and Latino community, loved where I grew up. It was one of those neighborhoods where people watched out for each other's kids, and if you did something wrong, you didn't even have to get home before Miss Lucy or Miss Mary or somebody. She said, oh, no, I got this, Doc. So <laughs> you, <laughs> right? So we were a community, and I loved where I grew up, but we weren't wealthy, and we knew it, but we had fun. We played all kinds of games. Our imaginations were crazy, and so we're, what we didn't have, we created, and it was just a great place to grow up. But we also know that our schools weren't the best schools, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Under-resourced would probably the way, be the way we describe it now. And so when I was 16 years old, there was a woman I met because I needed a summer job. Her name was Dorothy Katz. Dorothy Katz was a Jewish woman who was extremely wealthy with friends who lived in Pennington, New Jersey. So Trenton, New Jersey was here, and, and the neighborhood that I lived in, Trenton, was an under-resourced neighborhood. Pennington was over here, and it was anything but under-resourced. I mean, I had ne Pennington was a pretty big deal. Kind of orcas, you know? It's really special. You didn't live here by accident. You got here with some inheritance or some real serious wealth. So, bless her heart. Mrs. Katz decided that she wanted to do something to improve the lives of inner-city kids. And so she started with her friends and her own money, something called the Reading and Recreation Program. And they were going to bring kids from the inner city out to Pennington for the summer to kind of do a reading program. And because she wanted them to have fun, too, they would have different things that they could do. She owned horses, so they could ride horses. Some people had tennis courts in their Backyard, Jesus, tennis cards in your back. <laughs> I didn't even know you could, but you know, and they could play tennis. And so, so she wanted to make sure that she had counselors that represented uh, the kids as well as people from Pennington. So she had 12 counselors, six white counselors, and six black counselors. I was one of the six that came from Trenton. You get the basic idea, right? So we go to, to, to Pennington for before the kids come for orientation. We're going to get oriented to our new roles as camp counselors. And those of us from Trenton who came out to Pennington and saw this wealth, I mean, the, the kind of wealth that we didn't even know existed. We didn't have TV with that had the lifestyle of the rich and famous yet. So this was like watching the lifestyle on the rich and famous for real. And we thought, oh. Now, what I now know in hindsight is we were intimidated. But at the time, we got an attitude. It was in the 70s, and we were kind of doing our uh, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And so the white counselors saw us, and they huddled together, all of them watching us. So, and we saw them, and you could feel the tension. 
So the next day, we came back to camp, and we decided that since you're scared of us, we're going to really make you scared. We're going to look ominous when we come back. So we came back the next day, dashikis on, Afro pics in the back of our head, and we were like, right on. And so now, now Mrs. Katz can see this is not going to work. The kids haven't even arrived yet, and we are already starting to tear the camp up. She can see it. So she found some people from Outward Bound who said that if you want to bring people together, that the best way to do that is to cause them to survive together. And, and so one way you can simulate survival is to put people in camp into some wilderness situation where they have to depend on each other. And so Mrs. Katz said to us, when you come on Friday, bring your camping gear <laughs> bring your camping gear. <laughs> bring your camping gear. And and <laughs> bring your camping gear. And we are going to go. We you're going to for the weekend you're going to go away together. And and you know we had I had no camping gear. I didn't I didn't know what camping gear was. And and so I like I brought an extra pair of pants or something to put on top of the other ones, you know. So I had no camping gear, no boots, no nothing. No camping camping gear, didn't know what it was. So on that Friday, she loads us into the back of a flatbed truck. And, and, and her and, and another person drove us to some undisclosed location and basically um, stopped someplace that may not have even been that far. But to me, it felt like we were in the middle of the wilderness. And she stopped the truck Opened the guy got out, opened the flatbed truck, told us all to get out. Uh, everybody got their stuff, and then the truck pulled away. And then out of the wilderness came this guy in like Gurkha shorts and a, a cap, like a hat, and a staff in his hand, and he said, Follow me. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and when I tell you I hated every single second of it, I hated every single second of it. <laughs> It was raining, um, caterpillars were everywhere. Um, I brought some pretzels with me because I decided that I was going to survive on my own. And um, uh, people were, they had dehydrated food that this guy had us out there trying to make with water and we were stirring it with a stick and I was just like, I'm not eating that. It was just 16, remember I'm 16, I was just not having it. And, um, and I wasn't cooperating, and I didn't have a good attitude, and I was 16, and you know that weird place you're at where um, you, I was 16. <laughs> and it wasn't pretty. It was not pretty. And, um, and so as the time went on, I'll spare you all the details, but as the time went on, the last day of the three days, right, um, we had to get to wherever this truck was supposed to come back and pick us back up. And we had to go uh, over, a, a climb a, a rock face, a mountain, it felt like a mountain to me, but we had to climb this rock, get to the other side, then we had to swim across whatever this thing was, I don't know, but... Um, 
The whole thing was just horrible to me, honestly horrible. And because I didn't have the proper gear or all that kind of stuff to do this, and I didn't, um, when we got to the rock climbing piece, I didn't even have shoes that could grip. I didn't have gloves. So as I kept trying to climb, I literally slid back down the face of the rock. I just couldn't get it together. And by now, people who had found a way over had already gone, and I had come up and down that rock so much that my fingers were starting to bleed. I was, you know, I, 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 it was not good. And I was getting frustrated and I was starting to cry. And even the friends I had come with, the six black counselors, somehow most of them had already gone. And I'm not even sure how I got to be last, but I, I was. And I was starting to wonder if I could climb this rock because whatever kind of shoes I had on just didn't grip. So I kept sliding back down. And with my fingers, I kept trying to hold on. And then I was cutting my hands. And then all of a sudden, I saw the hand of uh, a guy, a white guy, and he reached down, and I could see him straining to get me, and, and I grabbed up, and he grabbed me, and with his strength, he literally pulled me to the top, and when I got to the top, we had this weird moment where he looked directly in my eyes, and I looked directly in his eyes, and I can't tell you what happened with words. He didn't say anything to me. I was too young and probably dumb and arrogant to say anything to him. But I can promise you that from that summer, I don't remember any of the other white counselors' names. But I will never forget Danny Katz. Mrs. Katz's son, Danny, that day, became a human being to me. He was no longer a white guy. He was a person. I couldn't hate him. And I wish someday, maybe, I might get a chance to see him and tell him what I should have said all those many years ago, thank you. But it was the beginning of a defining moment that was turning me into a reconciler. And I didn't even know it. I hadn't even come to faith. So now I leave and I go to college. And I'm at Rutgers University. And I have graduated from that high school. And I finished my summer job with Mrs. Katz. And now I'm at Rutgers and I'm trying to figure out what it means to be a college student. In my sophomore year, I come to know Jesus Christ. I um, met a young lady on my dorm floor who led me to Jesus Christ, and um, I came full force. And um, I learned about a group called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Somebody invited me to go with them to that, and I also learned about Campus Crusade, and somebody invited me to go to that with them. And so as a young black woman on a college campus where I was a minority, it was kind of weird going to a campus ministry where no one in the whole room looked like me. And so, but I loved Jesus. I'm telling you, when you think that Brenda name is fiery, I was fiery. And by then, I had already started going to that Pentecostal church that I told you about yesterday. And so when we got to the uh, prayer meeting that my friend took me to with InterVarsity, I remember hearing somebody say that we were going to have prayer. And I thought, well, great. 
I can pray. And even though I was the only one who was of my color in that room, along with the woman who brought me, I thought, well, let's pray. So when they said, all right, let's just have prayer. We're going to open the time for prayer. I stood up and I said, Lord, I thank you in the name of Jesus that you bless us. And I just went in. I just started praying. Lord, we love you. Hallelujah. Lord God, come to our campus. And then I opened my eyes because I thought, I can only hear me praying. Where's every... Where's everybody? Where's the prayer meeting? And I was doing, and I looked around, and everybody at the prayer meeting was like, <laughs> everybody, everybody. I've learned to tone down the fire since, amen, so that I don't scare you. But I'm still that woman, and I still pray like that. But it was the moment that I realized that something about Christians being together felt, made me feel uncomfortable. It was the beginning of me feeling like we believe the same, but I don't feel like I... So I learned to tone down me. I learned to tone down me. And then we started going, and Lord, I agree with Bob, yes. And <laughs> yes, and what Jenny just said. And I was like, so I, I learned. I figured it out, and I went, oh, okay, okay, no standing, no clapping, no hands up, okay, down, down, down. But it doesn't feel good when you were born to be who you are, that you figure out that when you come around the people of God, you have to find out how to put that person in a box and keep her there. Don't come with your full self. Don't be who you are God-given made to be because it makes them feel uncomfortable. So I decided that I would go to a black uh, a Bible study. And I'm not even sure we decided. Let me tell you the truth. We didn't decide. It happened because we felt so uncomfortable on campus in general, just trying to figure out how to be a black student on a primarily white Ivy League-ish kind of campus. So we were working that out. Then we come to our groups that we're trying to be a part of, but we feel far in there. So I think we just came together out of plain desperation, kind of birds of the feather flocking together. And so we started a Bible study. And let me tell you something. That Bible study grew to be the largest one on that campus. The largest one. We didn't even have a name. We basically believed that on Friday night, whatever we used to do, what we should do now is come to know Jesus. And so what I began to do as a result of that was just share my faith in a passionate way. And so did everybody else who came to that Bible study. And before you knew it, we became larger than any other campus ministry on that campus. When the president, Ed Blousting, asked us what our name was, we didn't even have a name. We said, we're the Friday. Somebody else said, night. And then somebody else said, prayer. And I think the last guy said, group. <laughs> we went down on the books as the Friday night prayer group. <clears throat> but that's where a question got started in my gut that I didn't even realize was there. What was it that made us have to start our own group? What was it that we knew other people who loved God, but something about us felt uncomfortable with them? I didn't even know I was asking the question if the truth be told. But now, fast forward. I finish, and guess what? I graduate as a speech pathologist. That's my new career. So I am now working as a speech pathologist in the public school system, and I learned some incredible things about public schools, and I learned that there's something called a child study team, and I'm on it, and we 
get to make decisions about how children are placed in school, right? And one of the things I realized one day, and I told this story to someone while I was here, was that kids were being misdiagnosed and placed into schools for being slow learners when actually the test we use, which we call standardized tests, didn't even have them in mind when it was standardized. Do you hear what I'm saying? So I was given a test to a little boy one day, and he happened to be a little black child. I think he was going into third grade or in third grade, and, and I was doing a language ac- uh, assessment. And so on my side of the screen, I had word, a word that I was looking for. He saw pictures, and I would say the word, he points to the appropriate picture, and then I score if he gets the concept. Make sense? So the picture on his side were four different types of food. I say on my side, wiener. He points to the wrong picture. And then something instinctively said to me, and I, it just leapt out of my mouth. I said, hot dog. And he pointed to the right picture. And then another question. I thought to myself, how many young kids, black kids, are getting misdiagnosed and put into slow learner classes, and their trajectory is changed for the rest of their lives because somebody's not changing the test like I just did for Stacy. That's a systemic issue. So I went to grad school because I thought, well, one, I'm going to become a a person who can change the laws and the rules about how speech therapists are trained. I wanted to do that. And in that, I got a call to ministry. Believe it or not, this is what happened. And Lord, help me to hurry and tell this. But basically what happened was I um, went to grad school to do what I just described, become an administrator of speech pathologists because that's what I believed I was called to do. I would preach on the side, but my gig, my job was being a speech pathologist. But then in that class, I was introduced to the Maslow's hierarchy, which basically said, this is what causes people to produce. And they said, first, your physical needs, your safety needs, then I think it was one other need, but then self-esteem needs. And I realized that I was at the self-esteem need place where people were impressed, my mother especially, with what I did for a living as a speech pathologist. But then there was this higher place, and it was the place where you are in self-actualization. You are living into the purpose for which you were born. And whether you get paid for it or not, you couldn't think of not doing it. And I didn't know what that was. And so one night, another person, the only other African-American speech pathologist, his name was Bobby Smith, and Bobby and his wife Sharon had a baby boy born full term, nine months, swallowed amniotic fluid during the birthing process, and died. A nine-pound baby, nine-month pregnancy. I went over just to try to be a comfort. I wasn't trying to evangelize anybody. But somehow in our conversation with me sharing my testimony, Sharon came to faith. And it was so holy and so beautiful. I moved away from she and her husband so that they could weep together and hold each other. I didn't want to be a part of such a holy moment. And when I went over to the window of their apartment and looked out on the city street, I said to myself, I love this. And I realized in that moment that ministry is what I would do for free. It is a gift and a blessing when I get paid. And then I went to seminary. I'm at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. And now I'm on this journey toward joy, and I don't even know it. 
So I'm pursuing now ministry, the picture of who I am getting clearer, what this fiery spirit was born for is starting to get more clear to me. And I'm in seminary, I finished my three years, but before you can graduate, you have to do a practicum. My practicum was at Occidental College. I go to Occidental College to do campus ministry because I didn't want to be the pastor of a church and I wasn't called to that. So I was wondering what else could I do? A woman named Marta Bennett, some of you may know Marta, she was at UPC. Marta Bennett said, you should do my internship, my practicum. I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm working at Occidental College and I'm going to finish so you can replace me. And that's exactly what happened. But what Marta didn't tell me was that Doug Gregg, who is now a very, very dear friend, at the time when he was the chairman, chaplain, he was a person who had come to faith as the chaplain. He was the chaplain at Occidental College, had gotten the job because he was an ethics professor, had a PhD in ethics and religion, and basically he wanted to teach ethics and religion, and the chaplaincy came as a part of the deal. (laughs) In a varsity students, only eight of them learned that the chaplain was not born again and began fervently praying that God would save the chaplain. (laughs) It's true. So they were just praying, and he would listen to them, and they were praying, Lord, he's a pagan. Lord, save the chaplain. And so, you know, he listened to this, and he went to Mike Flynn, an Episcopal priest outside of where Oxy is in Eagle Rock, California, and he said, Mike, what do they want? What are they praying about? And Mike led him to faith, and so now we have a new believer who is the chaplain who doesn't know anything about evangelism or discipleship, so anything that InterVarsity did, that's what he did. So when I started working for Doug, I also became a part of InterVarsity. And so when I showed up on campus, there were two things that I thought I might have a passion for or called to. I was a woman in ministry, and I realized that because of hearing people like John Perkins, Roberta Hestinus, Bill Pinnell, uh, Tony Campolo, and, 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 and other people who had come through Fuller, I was starting to get this understanding Understanding that it, the, le- the playing field wasn't level for everybody. Not everybody was giving, getting an opportunity to cultivate their calling and their gift equally. And so I knew that there were women on that campus who was hoping I would come and champion that cause, and I was passionate about it. But then I went to the chapel service, and it was full, just like this. And in it, there were only two people of color, two in the whole room. Amen. A guy named Elias, a Latino brother who I still am friends with today, who wanted to kind of get away from his Latino heritage. For him, he felt like the way to be an oxy person was to divorce himself from this whole cultural being Mexican thing. And there was another guy named Ed, and he was dating a girl named Susie. She was white, Ed was black, and he came because Susie came. And then Rutgers and Fuller collided. And I thought about how off, how odd and outside I felt at Rutgers. And I wondered, why is it that we can have a gathering like this with so many good, godly people and people of color don't come? What makes that happen? Be careful of the questions you ask <laughs> because they will take you on journeys that you can't even imagine. And that is the question that became a burning question. 
I couldn't get it off my mind. I knew that there were people like me at Rutgers who were praying in dorm rooms and having Bible studies and prayer meetings by themselves, just not coming to the to the larger thing, the Kindlings Fest, the IV group, the, the, the Campus Crusade, the Bible Fellowship. I thought, where are they? So given this personality that I have, I started finding them. I found them. I went to their room. I went to their gospel choir meeting, and we were having ourselves a time, and I started kind of becoming a little Pied Piper with them. And little did I know I was beginning to v- develop a new wineskin, a new way of thinking about what it was to bring the church together. I wasn't trying. You don't wake up one day and say, I think I'd like to be a specialist in racial reconciliation. I wasn't. I was just trying to figure out how to bring the church together. That was my passion. How do you bring good people who all love God? What has to happen to bring them together so that what Jesus said in Ephesians 2 could be true? That the middle wall of hostility, the dividing wall has been abolished. And these people are now blood related in their family. How do you get all the family together? And that began to lead to principles and practices. And out of that, I began to develop some sort of an expertise in reconciliation. And so out of that, I began, after leaving university staff for 14 years, I became a consultant, a speaker, and a trainer around reconciliation. And so now I get a doctorate degree, but to do a consulting role, you need to have some idea of what you're trying to ask people to do, right? So you can't consult if you don't have some rubric or theoretical understanding of what the process looks like. So I developed a model. Yes, I did. And this is what the model looked like. Ta-da! I called it the reconciliation cycle. Took 20 years to develop this. And I said, okay, this is what I now know. Reconciliation begins when we come to a realization that what we thought about people just might not be true. And that maybe what we thought was the truth about society, maybe it's not fair for everybody. Maybe people aren't just making this up. Maybe when people say that this is really brutality, maybe it really is brutality. And maybe some Somebody ought to do something about this. And the church said, amen. So I became convinced that if we can't get people to turn a light bulb on and to see something different, they won't do something different. So the first stage of reconciliation as a consultant was to help people come to the realization that maybe, just maybe, there are things we don't understand that we've got to wake up to. All right? And then after that, I saw, and once we wake up to it, then we've got to identify with people. And, and I hear a story in my head, so let me tell you. There was this guy, a wonderful guy, who led, he's white, and he led a guy whose name is Bo, who's now the pastor of a big church in Chicago. He led him to Christ. Bo happened to be African-American, and, and this white guy was his youth worker. Wonderful relationship. They were roughhousing one day. He was wrestling, and the youth coach had him, and Bo somehow wrestled outside of the, the whole and all of a sudden, the, the youth pastor said, Bo! And he let his hands go. And Bo said, Pastor Four now, said, did I hurt you, coach? Because he thought the way he screamed that maybe he broke his arm or something. Because Bo's a pretty big guy. And then all of a sudden, the youth pastor did like this. He touched his head and he said, Bo, your hair is soft. <laughs> Bo said, yeah. (laughs) And then he said, do you know what I was told? 
I was told that all black people's hair was like steel wool. But your hair is soft. That's a realization. That's when you have to say, what I was told ain't true. Hallelujah. And I've just had an encounter with reality, and I've got to start asking new questions. And when that happens, you'll identify with people that you wouldn't normally identify with. You'll see your story in their story. And you'll realize that what you want for your children is what they want for their children. And the identification process is when we start to create a new sense of community with folks. And for the most part, the church likes that. This other stuff, though, gets harder. We don't mind identifying with people and, and, and feel lamenting with them. And Promise Keepers was one of those kinds of movements that I really thank God for, so no shade on Promise Keepers. But it was this relational thing where people would come together and they would bond together and they would say, I really am sorry for the history in our country. We would say to Native Americans, we, you know, we want to come to the powwow. We want to stand in solidarity. And that's a good thing to do to do. I thought myself about the army and, 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 and military uh, uh, units, my nephew having gone to, to the Marines. You start as individuals, but at some point they put the same uniform on you and they say, now you are one. And, and, and I think on some level we want to be one and we want to do it, but I think we don't realize that if we're really going to make a difference, we can't just relationally want to do it. we got to systemically prepare and that's where the pre- pre- preparation phase comes in. We got to say, what do we need to do to change the systems that, and the structures and the power balances? What's God calling this congregation to versus that congregation to? What would it look like for us to really be built to last and not just have an emotional reaction where First Baptist visits Second Baptist and we have that fellowship dinner? What would it look like for us to really say, right, that we are really going to do something different? So I have a friend. He's a Korean brother. He lives in New Jersey outside of New York, and he's planted an intentionally multiracial church. And he said, you know what? He calls me Rev Doc. He said, Rev Doc, I I decided that we were just doing what everybody else was doing. We got the right-looking people in the room, but the right-looking people in the room don't make it reconciliation. Amen. And so you can have the right people in the room, but nothing about who they are is actually shifting or changing who they are as people. So he took the whole church, canceled church, and said, we're going to go on a prayer walk, everybody. Church today is a prayer walk, and we're going to walk in our neighborhood, and we're going to walk around this neighborhood, and we're going to pray one prayer. God, break our hearts for what breaks your heart. And nobody come back to church until you have some sense of what breaks God's heart. And he said, now you guys go that way, going to this neighborhood, nobody drive, just walk. And he said he started walking, and they started walking the whole church for a whole Sunday service, walking in this Fort Lee, New Jersey, a place where he knows there's issues, and he planted the church there because there is issues. And as he walked around, he realized that there were more kids going to detention centers in that part of New Jersey than other places, and he stopped and he saw an empty house, and he heard his spirit say, you know what? We can't just have a church in this neighborhood. We need to live in this neighborhood. And he got the church to buy that house. And he said, I will subsidize the rent of any of you guys who are willing to make a commitment to live in the neighborhood where we worship. That's preparation. 
Now that house is a safe house for kids who want to get away from gangs. If you don't want to be in a gang, you come over to this house. So this is not just taking up space. This is becoming a part of the neighborhood they identify with. And then the final phase is activation. That's when you start saying, now out of this preparation phase, we're going to do this, and we're going to stand for this, and we're going to make sure that we do this. And I can tell you it's not easy, and it is a risky thing to do, and I know for sure that it'll scare us. I went to Costa Rica, Costa Rica, because I want to learn to speak Spanish fluently. So for those of you who do, yo aprendiendo a hablar español, es muy importante para mí, porque este... Uh, Mundo es cambio, ¿sí? ¿Sí? Entonces es muy, muy importante por todo. So it's very important because the world is changing and I can't say that I'm a reconciliation advocate and I don't do it myself because it's not a black-white issue. It's a global issue. And so I kept telling people, right? I kept telling people, I really care, I really care. And so I went to Costa Rica to immerse myself in language school to become more fluent. And, and then I came back. I loved it. I loved Costa Rica. I'll go again and again and again. But when I came back, I had one of those moments that scared me. And I want to tell you so that you don't feel like I'm the expert who's beating folks up. I was in the line coming back from Costa Rica, and it said that re residents go in one line and non-residents in another. And non-residents were anybody other than the United States and Canadians. So I went into the line that I was supposed to, right? But I looked at the line of non-residents, and I looked at our line of residents, and it was both as diverse as the other. There was as much diversity in the non-residents line as there was in the residence line. And Miss Reconciliation said, we already are really diverse. And I began identifying with people who are afraid of immigration and people who feel like we should stop people from coming because we got enough. And I was ashamed of myself, but I saw that place that makes us afraid or that makes us feel like we got enough stuff already. We can't, we can't keep sharing. I was asked when I got back from Costa Rica to come to Washington, D.C. in the Lobby Congress for Immigration Reform. And I'm not an expert, but I went. Because activation is what takes us into more realization. And sometimes we just got to get in the game, even if we're still new at it. And so I went and I gave a talk to the Evangelical Roundtable on Immigration, and I did lobby Congress, and I told the story that I just told you, because now I know this. Listen, you can't say you love people and not care about the policies that impact those people. And so if I care, that means I care about education and mass incarceration. That means I care about immigration. I care about health care, because I can't say I care about people without caring about the issues and the policies that impact those people. That's what activation does. So, I'm going to get ready to quit. At the bottom, this is what I, you can do the whole thing for this, Carlo. So what I realize is that people don't just wake up someday and say, let me realize what I haven't seen before. It's usually, <laughs> right? It's usually we're, we're, we're all like I was when I was 16 in Trenton, New Jersey. I was isolated and I was alienated and I tried to preserve what I knew, which is why we all came back in dashikis, because we felt like whatever we knew as black was being threatened by whatever wealth we saw in Pennington. And so we were trying to hold on to what we thought was, thought was our cultural identity, right? And all of us are ethnocentric, if the truth be told. We've been raised in communities that seem normal to 
to us, and it is normal to want to hold on to that which makes sense to us. Amen? Amen. And so usually God has to do something that shakes us out of it, that makes us kind of go, oh, whoa, and that makes us realize, wow, God is doing something with people, and God is at work in this world, and God wants this church to move from this place to that place. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. They were preserving what they knew to be Jewish, and then on Acts chapter 2, God brought people from all these other languages and countries, and God said, this is supposed to be a diverse thing called church, and anything lacking that is not the full revelation of who I am, and that's what made Peter say, whoa. This is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. God said it would look like this. Amen? All right. Woo! All right. So what I learned is that it's supposed to transform us. So what you just saw, I loved. But I tried it on my college students. And I said, look at the boxes. Look at the boxes. And they said, we hate it, Dr. B. You got to explain too much of it. What we really need is a tool. They said, we need something that if you weren't there giving a talk, you didn't have to explain all the boxes. I was like, oh, okay, I hear that. (laughs) So I said, so what do you think it should look like? And they said, we think it should look like a road map because what we need is a map. We believe that what you are painting a picture of is where we're supposed to go, but we're not sure how to get there. They said, now, see, Dr. B, if you make it look like a road map, you can show us that we get, we all start the journey, but we all don't go through the process of reconciliation. And the church said, amen, we don't. He said, see, the the student said, which is why I love to teach, because it's this dialogical process where I learn from them and they learn from me, and I'm beginning to realize that that is indeed why I'm called. That's why I teach my calling, this fiery young woman who God called Brenda Joyce. My purpose is to give voice to the truth using words that empower people to articulate it or embody it for themselves. I am called to help people become practitioners of reconciliation in their spheres of influence. And those people are usually young emerging Christian leaders. And I love teaching because they make me better. And they said, you see, we'll all start the process and get on the road, but some of us will have a catalytic event, and it won't make us wake up. For some of us, Ferguson will happen, it'll scare the hell out of us, and we'll go back into our own preservation world. We'll go back into Annie, get your gun. We'll go back into close down the borders. We'll try to preserve everything we know, and haven't we seen that? Haven't we seen that? Instead of bringing us to repentance and a waking up of the need to come together, there's been more polarization than we have seen in decades, if not more. And that's what happens when catalytic events can take us and put us into this part of the circle. We go back into further isolation. Amen. But 
that same catalytic event can launch us into this process of reconciliation where we start to realize a new reality and we begin to say to people, your people become my people. And we start to get ready, not for short-term change, but for lasting change. What do we have to do in Kindling's Fest for us to be who we say we want to be, systemically, structurally, at the core of who we are? What needs to change? God, do it. And then finally, what do we have to do to actively get in the game? That's what the students helped me to create. And I thought I liked that better. <laughs> That's the joy that we talked about. Steve mentioned the other day, the joy, the creativeness that comes out of community. That's what happened for me. So let me close with this. All of that teaching and all of that process has led to a book. And I'm not trying to sell you anything because it's not even in print yet, but we got a cover. <laughs> we got a cover! We got a cover! And so, that, the new book is called Roadmap to Reconciliation, Moving Communities into Unity, Wholeness, and Justice. I'm so thankful that my husband is here because a lot of the intellectual property that helped me to fuel my thinking on this came with him and I working together. But I want to ask a few of you, what does that image look like to you? If you had to say to me, when you look at it, what do you think about reconciliation when you see that? What does that road suggest? about the journey. All right, let, let, I hear a few. Let me go right here. It has to come together at the end. Ah, something has to come together at the end. Yes. It has rises and falls. Anybody know what we're talking about? Yes. Long way to go. Yes. We don't know where it's going. It, we, don't, we can't see the end. Anybody else? Yeah, and so somebody might say it's straight and direct, and I might say, man, I wish we could make that a circle because I don't know if it is straight and direct, but it's long. <laughs> it's long. I, you know, I heard one or two more. Ah, the red trees remind you of the blood of Jesus. And sometimes we got to say, Lord, if it wasn't for you, we couldn't even take this journey. Anybody else? Anybody else? It's a two-way street. I believe that. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. Oh. Absolutely. It's not right. It could be what we see in retrospect. It could be what we perceive for the future. Wow. Good insight. Yeah. Wow, a house with open doors, a table set, kind of drawing you in, an invitation in. Wow, we can't see it, but your imagination, your vision says there's a table waiting for us. Wow. Stay on course, a roadmap, it's going somewhere. Bob? Absolutely, right? A country I've never been to before. I got to quit. I wish I could keep going, but let me say this. I would just say that this journey is teaching me a few things. So let me tell you what I'm coming to believe. I believe that reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process that involves repentance, forgiveness, and justice that transforms and restores relationships and systems to God's original intention for the world. That's how I would define it. But let me tell you what I believe. And this is what gives me joy. 
I believe that God is calling the church who's been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation to create new models of what it can look like. This book is my attempt to try to put all of the years of my journey in one place, to say, I wish somebody had given me a map. I wish somebody could have told me this twist and the turns to at least have a heads up for. I wish somebody could have given me a few landmarks to say, once you get to that, you're going to make a left or something like that. But the thing that gives me joy is twofold, and I'm going to quit here. One, I really do believe that there's a young generation for whom this is a non-negotiable. They know that this world is calling them someplace that they've not seen before. And they know that the models that, they've give, that we've been giving them is not working. When I went, by God's grace, to Ferguson, Missouri, uh, with a group of evangelical faith leaders, we met with young 20-somethings. None of them were old. And they talked to us, not with a high degree of reverence or respect for us as clergy. They basically didn't like us. And it's true. They said, we don't like your hypocrisy. We don't like your uh, um, misogyny, they said. Ugh. They said, you know, we don't like your duplicity. We don't like the way you keep people out. We don't like the, 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 the conflicts, the petty. They just went on and on and on. And they just were, they, they said to us, look, we don't have a PhD. One guy said, we don't have a PhD in racial harmony. He said, these are the cards that got dealt to us, and we're just trying to play the hand we got. The next day, after we told them that we really care and the church really wants to do right and we really want to help and all this kind of stuff, the next day, the decision about Eric Garner, the man who said in New York 11 times, I can't breathe, the decision came down not to indict anybody for anything, about that man's death. Now, we had already met with these young activists the night before, and we told them how the church, church, church cared, cared, cared. They sent us a text the next day, and they said, we're going to be on the steps of the courthouse at 4 p.m. To, to protest. Are you coming or not? Shane Claiborne was there. For those of you who know Shane, another guy, Sung Chan Ra, was there. Another guy, Curtis DeYoung, I was there. Several of us were there, and we all had flights. And we tried, oh, are you going to miss our flight? Here's Shane in the middle of the protest with a roller bag. No justice, no peace. No, <laughs> just protest, Shane. We all had to figure out what it meant for us to show up. We all had to say to this generation, we're not just talking to talk. And that's what's being asked of us. I promise you, this new wine that God wants to pour out into these new wineskins, the younger generation has them. And they're asking us for them. They're saying to us, we believe that there's something to your spirituality, but your spirituality feels so irrelevant because it doesn't deal with the bigger issues. And if we really want to experience joy, I think what we would do is find a way to demonstrate the truth that that road leads to a place called the kingdom of God, a place that King said is the beloved community, a place where people from every tribe and every nation and every language and every ethnicity gather together with the throne of God in the center, where the lion lays down with the lamb and people beat their, by their, their swords into plowshares. That kingdom is not a myth. It is real.
And if we would ever demonstrate the truth of that, there's young people waiting to be a part of that thing that's going to that place. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. Amen.